With that, we are in Matthew chapter 5, um, verse 27 through 32. I will pray, and then we'll get into our passage here. Um, Father, we do thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for this, um, this great sermon that was recorded uh, by Matthew. Um, Lord, the Sermon on the Mount. And Father, as we navigate these three chapters over the next few months, Lord, we, we turn to you and we pray that you would, through your spirit, Lord, uh, illuminate the meaning of the passage, Lord. Uh, Lord, give us wisdom. Lord, we ask that you would help us to humbly come before you, that we um, would allow the attorney within us uh, to take a back seat, that we wouldn't be quick to defend or excuse ourselves, but that we would humbly lay ourselves before you, that we would allow you uh, to do a work within us. Uh, we thank you that um, our hope is not bound in our works, our own righteousness. We thank you, Lord, um, that it's through Christ that he has paid it all for us. And so, Lord, as we turn our attention to this uh, portion of Matthew, I pray that you would help us. We pray that your grace would come through this text abundantly clear. I ask that you would help us, Lord, to rightly understand what was said uh, the heart behind this, and Lord, that you would challenge us, Lord, that we would um, fall upon your grace and just uh, be thankful for the mercy that you have uh, demonstrated to us. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of your parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right eye makes you stumble, or your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for this text. We, Lord, ask for your help. We pray that you would speak through your word to us now. Father, we need your help. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. I'll start out by saying that this is absolutely no passage that I would choose to preach on. I, uh, I, I, I don't preach topically. I don't, I, I don't just kind of thumb through week to week and say, oh, what should we? Oh, man, I just lost my place. I want to do that. <laughs> What should we talk on this week? If we did this, there's no way I would ever come to this passage and say, yeah, this is a great one. Let's tear into this. This is wonderful. In fact, a few months ago, well, not a month, probably about a month ago, I learned that Ben Fredericks, uh, Don's son, who's been at Moody Bible Institute for the last two years, is going to be back the week after Easter. And so we've been sort of, you know, he's a part of our church. We've been sort of, you know, mentoring him, helping him along in his uh, pastoral journey. And I text him when I realize that he's going to be in town. I say, Hey man, when you're in town, how about you preach that Sunday? And, and it'll be good for you. You know, we want to support you as a church to get, to get opportunities to preach. It, it, it's a huge thing in, in the development of learning, um, the art and craft of preaching. And so he responds right back to, back to me and he said, Hey, well, what passage will we be in? And so right away, I'm just, thankful as a pastor that Ben knows that we just cover, you know, a book of a Bible at a time. And I can just tell him months out, like, Hey, where will we be? And so I'm texting, I'm on my phone and I'm like, ah, where we are. So I open up my drop, Dropbox file to see how, ah, what passage we'll be in. And I look down and I see, I'm like, Oh, it's just slated Matthew 5, 31 and 32. What does that say? It was said, whoever sends his wife away, and I was, I'm like, hey, Ben, I, I can't do that to you. Like there's, I mean, you, we, we want to, you know, we want you to cut your teeth with preaching and everything, but I just, I, man, I'm like, 
I'm like, that's slated, but how about I like merge it with today's passage so that we can give you the next section, which is, which is a little bit easier for the, you know, the first time. Um, this is a difficult passage. And as we get into this passage, uh, I understand uh, I, divorce has affected our culture in, in huge ways. Uh, growing up, uh, my parents were divorced m- multiple times. Uh, everyone I knew, their parents were divorced. Um, it's a systemic problem through our, our culture. And so I understand that when we come to this text, we, we're, we're, we're going to hit some very sensitive bones. I have, I have yet to meet a person who talks about their divorce experience, whether it was their parents or their own lives, that talk about it like you talk about Disneyland. This is a terribly painful subject. And so uh, my prayer is that I can navigate this with grace um, and honoring the text. And so the first step in sort of honoring this passage is getting it in context. Um, We need to remind ourselves the Sermon on the Mount, uh, specifically even this this chapter 5 deals a lot with the law. Um, If you'll go back to chapter 5, verse 17 through 20, Jesus sort of gives an introduction. We find ourselves in a place where Jesus is expanding upon the law and his relationship to it. As, as the Messiah is the one coming on scene, as he teaches and proclaims the kingdom of heaven, the Jewish people would say, well, what are you saying about the law? Uh, the Messiah would uphold the law. And so Jesus says in 5.17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, unless until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So as he begins this message on the Sermon on the Mount, he says that the standard that God has set, the standard of righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And now we don't live in a day and age where there's scribes and Pharisees just going in and out of our lives. But to the people's standard, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the standard. Very few people qualified. Paul in his testimony in Philippians of his life before Christ, he says that according to the righteousness, according to righteousness which is found in the law, I was blameless. And so by Paul's testimony of his life as a Pharisee, he said, I was without fault according to the law. He would continue and explain that as he met Christ, he realized that the standard was much higher, that the standard of God exceeded that of the Pharisees. So Jesus' introduction would sort of cut people off at the kneecaps. If we go to the very last verse of chapter 5, Jesus says this, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I think that it would probably be a fair assumption I don't think anybody in this room thinks they're perfect as God is perfect. Amen? We can shout it out. None of us. The the whole purpose of the law is not a roadmap to heaven. The purpose of the law is to show you your depravity, to show you your sin, which leads you to Christ, Paul says in Galatians. None of us meets the standard. 
Um, the aim of the Sermon on the Mount, I think, causes us to realize that our only hope is in God's grace and that we fall there and we glory in His grace. We are ultimately thankful for His mercy towards us. Um, Again, this is not a subject I would choose to preach on, but because it's come, I am covering it. My prayer is that um, the Lord would allow us to have to, to lay our guard down, to hear what this says, that we would learn from it, that we would grow closer to Him through this. So last week, we covered the first of the six. Uh, you have heard that it was said. Chapter 5 con- con- contains six of these statements. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. Today we are covering two of these. This um, is the second one. It's covering the seventh commandment. Last week we covered the sixth commandment. Uh, uh, verse 21, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And then Jesus explains about murder and the root cause of it in the heart. And so today we come to verse 27. He, he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. This is the seventh commandment found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. Adultery uh, during their time uh, and ours, really. Um, adultery is defined or understood as sexual infidelity within the context of marriage. Um, Jesus is going to explain that the root issue of adultery begins way before the act actually happens. Uh, In verse 28, he says, but I say to you that everyone, uh, he he broadens everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So, in this sentence, there's a verb and there's a participle connected to this verb, which um, sort of shed light. The verb is to, to look. The participle connected to the looking is lust. And so this isn't, this has been a difficult one to explain. Like I, te- I kind of, I kind of do test runs with Anna on the sermons. I talk through stuff and, uh, <laughs> This has been a difficult test run. I've, <laughs> I've got a little, zzz, that, that, that's not, that, that's not going to work. Don't go there. Try to talk to your wife about the, the difference. This, this, okay, she's in this service with much, much harder. So I'm just going to like make eye contact on these first fruit rows. And, uh, this idea of looking. This isn't to, to casually walk into a room somewhere and say, oh, there's like a pretty person. Before I'd been to Spain, Anna and I were like uh, in our dating, courting sort of, I was wanting to like pursue this girl. And I was on the way to the Middle East. And lo and behold, I knew that our flight last minute that we were going to get a layover in Spain. So talk about that was a card I could play. I knew she grew up in Spain. And so I said, hey, we're on the way to the Middle East. We get a stop in Rhoda. I get a whole day there. And she starts going on and on and on. She's like, oh, it's so wonderful. Do all of these things. And I knew that we would be exhausted. All the guys were going to go to the room and go to sleep. And my, I had like a, a map of, of Rhoda to go see all of the locations where she grew up. I went to church that night at her old church, not speaking a lick of Spanish, I was pulling all of the stops to try to win this girl. I even left a Christmas card with that pastor because I knew she'd be coming through in a couple months. And uh, where was I? She said, the people in Spain are beautiful. And I thought, people are beautiful everywhere. And so our plane landed and there were two distinct thoughts I had as they opened the door of the plane. The pilot, when you land somewhere, always says the local time here is whatever. He said, well, the local time is 9 a.m. in the morning. And they opened the door, and it was pitch black. I'm like, what time did he say the local time was? They're like, 9 a.m., 9 a.m. Well, all of Europe's on the same time zone, and Spain is so far west, it gets light very later in the day. And then the lady came in from the ground crew, you know, like a lady who just, like, does 
manly, no, I don't, that's wrong. I'm, I almost get, I don't want to get the situation. <laughs> Heavy lifting type, like pushing stairs to the thing. She comes in and this girl was beautiful. <laughs> this is uncomfortable. <laughs> and then we get out of the plane and then we start walking through town. And it's like the taxi driver was a guy, beautiful guy. I mean, beautiful. Everybody just models like beautiful. I'm like, what is going on around here? Okay, thank you. <laughs> she said drop dead gorgeous. It wasn't me, but they're like, they're beautiful people. I just observed. I wasn't, li- I, 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 don't, I don't really remember. I don't think I was less and I'm certainly not going to admit to it from the pulpit right now. <laughs> and, and, and so the, the noticing of beauty is one thing. There's the looking, latching with your eyes and then taking the image of the people and going into your body and then going to places that you shouldn't go is the idea that Jesus is talking about. Um, James, Jesus' half-brother, in James 1, verses 14 through 15, he says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And so James is talking about a thought that begins in your mind and then you begin to dwell on it. And then that thought then leads to action. I think of David with Bathsheba, that he saw this beautiful woman. There's a bunch of different controversies. I don't even think that she was like naked on the rooftop. Like the, the, the culture, there was like water basins afternoon, they'd clean up and he, and I know the depravity of a, of a, of a male's mind. She didn't need to be naked for David to like have lustful thoughts. And then the thoughts turned into action, which then led to all sorts of other things. In between services, Don came up to me like, thanks, Don. (laughs) Don came up to me between services. I have a great illustration. Like last night, I need to change my my banner picture on Facebook. And I was scrolling through my old ones. And I came across a picture that I had placed of Smashburger. Now, I'm not a big fan of Smashburger, but I'm a big fan of In-N-Out. And so he said, well, when I saw that image, I started thinking about it. And then I started thinking, I need to go get a burger. I need to go to Smash Burger. Like, I really need one. He's like, I, then he said he had to like talk himself down. We have, we have rice and beans at the house. That'll work. I'll just be satisfied. But now I have this burger in my mind and I, I, I'm before the day is over, I will go get an In-N-Out burger. Like, I'm pretty sure of this. And I don't think it's sin. Like, I don't think this is just an illustration. Um, But it's the idea of this thought that then your mind hooks onto, and then you begin dwelling upon this thought, this image with lust. Ephesians 5.3 continues, and it says, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as proper for saints. For the follower of Christ, the the level of impurity that's allowed to, uh, to be played with is a very low standard that not, not even named amongst you. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I wasn't even raised around Christian friends. The handful of people who I knew were Christians, my memory of them from Gunner back then is they were total weirdos. They were just (laughs) weird. And then as I, I had no picture of what a healthy marriage looked like. I came, multiple divorces on my dad's side, on my mom's side, everybody I knew. And then I got to high school and I sort of found myself in, an, in another person's home, this family that sort of, to this day, they still refer to me as their adopted son. Uh, they'd been married and still are for many, many years. They are not Christians. Um, and, but the picture of marriage was the most beautiful picture of marriage that I had seen up to that point in my life. And uh, I, a saying that I heard from then, and I've heard it in other places, was you can look 
but you can't touch. We've all heard that, right? This seemed like a pretty good policy to me, like in merit, like it seemed like that's a pretty healthy policy. You can look, but you can't touch. There's nothing wrong with that. Even going to other people's houses that I know that are not believers, that are in semi-healthy relationships, uh, that's probably a very long stretch. But But let's just say older people's, where they could be on Social Security older, where they are on Social Security older, just to kind of be clear, you know, like I'm not talking like older like 30. <laughs> hey, I'm over that. I'm good. I'm good. I, I... But to go into their houses, like nice houses and on the coffee table to see like a stack of Playboys. Like when Anna and I find ourselves in this house, it's like she like, runs to kind of hide the Playboys. For the kids. <laughs> last thing we need is Gideon fumbling through Playboys like on the last day. I don't even want to know where that would. But so there's like this. And it just is like this is like appropriate because it's okay to look but not touch. But then when I come to the, the Bible. When I come to Jesus' teaching here, clearly this is not this like that. That's a very humanistic Standard and that standard will ultimately get you in all sorts of trouble and destruction. And I think that this is the point that Jesus is getting at. You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. They're just thinking sexual infidelity. But just like he dealt with murder, he goes to the root of the issue and he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart and I don't think that women understand this, but every guy knows exactly what Jesus is saying. Amen. <laughs> if you, never mind, you don't have to say amen. And tell me. <laughs> but all of the guys said amen. I heard it. <laughs> Jesus is getting right to the heart of men. This whole passage, in, he's dealing with the men. I, I don't care what the women's libs group say about what they're doing for women. The, the person who's liberated women more than anybody in any culture, like, is Jesus. Like, in his teachings, if you go to a culture that has been influenced by Christianity, women are the most freest, most protected, most honored in those cultures than in any other culture in the world is the bottom line. And this is a, this is a case where Jesus is taking the law He's getting to the heart of God's intent and he calls men out and he says, if you've looked with lust, you, by the spirit of the law, have committed adultery in your heart. As I've entered into the pastoral ministry, I, it just dawned on me that t- today, like this, this month is my 10 year anniversary of being out of the military. And I had a little overlap of ministry um, before I got out. And I remember early while I was still in the Navy, I tended to work, have like some influence on younger people, college age, singles age. And the, the issue of dating in the Bible, like how do we handle dating? How do we handle relationships? And during that window, I stumbled across a passage that is the closest thing I think I can, I've come up with of what the Bible has to say about that dating window, that from singleness to getting married. Um, and in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, Paul writes to this young, I believe, probably single guy who is a pastor. This is a pastoral epistle. He says, do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. This is the closest thing. If you're single, how do you relate to other people from the biblical context? It says in all purity, you treat the older ones like your mom or your dad. If you're a girl, like both ways to those of your peers, you treat them like your brother or sister in all purity. I can assure you, I've never struggled, struggled with lust with my sisters or my mom ever, ever. I'm resisting all of my comments to make a joke about the South, but I'm not going to go there. I don't think that anybody struggles with that. That's the point. 
Because as we begin to go down that road as a single person or married person, we go from looking at others as God's creations whom Christ died for to objects that become our object for satisfaction, not for their worth, but for your own hedonistic sort of pleasures. And I think that the key that the scripture says is to, to treat them with purity. First Corinthians 7, which I have listed up here. I didn't list every verse. I just, some key passages. First Corinthians 7 is another one that says if you're a single person and you have uh, come in contact with an, a person of the opposite gender, that, you know, those, those feelings within you are welling up, that a little fire has started. The Bible says... Get married so you don't go into impurity. That's the Bible's dating philosophy. It doesn't square well with our culture and what we think about things. Um, When I look at this passage, um, I'm going to read what I wrote. I wrote expand. I will venture out on a limb and suggest that the sanctity of marriage is ultimately an issue here. Sexual fidelity is one of the greatest bonds and to destroy this at any level can and will destroy the marriage. Maybe not even adultery, but what other things are you allowing in or dabbling in outside of your marriage that are eroding its foundation? Pornography, soft porn like romance novels or movies, your work, television, sports, your kids, extended family, friends. The the list could go on. There are a a, a lot of distractions that can erode of the foundation of marriage. And when I look at this passage that Jesus, when he says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. And I read through this section. It becomes very clear that Jesus is elevating the sanctity of marriage and that it should be protected, guarded, nurtured at great, great extent. And this, I don't believe this is just for married people. I think for those of us who are followers of Christ, it, 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 it transcends to everybody. Yes, if you're married, it applies to you. If you're not married for whatever reason, you are in relationships. Maybe you're friends with married people and they come to you for marriage advice. Well, what's your standard for giving marital advice? Our standard is this. This is why when somebody's having marriage problems... And they, they go to their single girlfriends or boyfriends. They say, oh, well, I need to get some help. What I want to do? Oh, go to a counselor. Well, you know, not every counselor is created equally. And especially like what you believe matters. If you go to a Christian counselor, they're going to say you fight, you, die, you do whatever you can do to save this marriage. Because that's what God wants you to do. If you go to Joe Schmo counselor that's not grounded anything Oh, don't you change your socks on a, on a couple year basis, right? Just, just go on. You guys have changed. Just get divorced. Move on. So when we look at this standard, it's important for, under, for us to, to get with clarity Jesus's standard, his, what God has revealed to us, the importance of marriage. And to what extent should we protect our marriages? To what extent should we preserve them? To what extent should we fight for them? Jesus is going to answer this question with verses 29 through 30, which he says, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. How do we handle this? We hear we take the Bible very literally and yet everybody in this room has their right hand and their right eye that's a male. (laughs) And I'm pretty sure that we've all had parts that have caused us to stumble. 
So during the last service, I told the, I told the church, I'm like, they really should be at the Sunday school class that Ben was teaching on, on Bible study. How do we handle this? See, we, we take the Bible literally, but that, that, the, the proper term is historical, grammatical, literal, that we allow the text to speak in context. Now, some over the years through church history would take this very literally. And let's just say we take this very wooden, very literally, and we say, okay, I've, I've looked at a woman with lust, so I need to gouge out my right eye. Is the problem solved? No, because I have my left eye. So then I gouge that eye out, and now am I good? Nope, because I have the almighty eye of my brain that's recorded every image and is very creative with coming up with things. If I cut off my right hand, I have my left hand. I don't think that this is, this is hyperbole, that Jesus is speaking with exaggeration to make a point. The, the, the right eye, the right hand, this in their culture was the, the two most valued parts of the body is totally discrimination. I'm left-handed and left-eye dominant. So I'd be like, sure, take my right hand. <laughs> Still got my shooting hand. <laughs> take out my right eye. It's okay. I got... <laughs> Jesus is saying, how, how, how far should you take guarding your, your purity, guarding your marriage, guarding and protecting Take it very serious. You put it at, ex- at the utmost level of protection. So much so that you should be, if, you, you, if your right eye causes you to stumble, you gouge it out. It's better to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be cast in hell. This is, this is challenging. Matthew 5, 6, Jesus started the sermon about the Beatitudes. And in verse 6, he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Prior to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew kept saying that Jesus and John the Baptist, their message was a message of repentance of the kingdom of heaven. And I do think that the fruit of repentance is this longing for righteousness. I don't know that as Christians, we don't attain perfection. It's really not until death till we're able to depart from the sinful body of flesh that we're able to truly attain perfection. But in this life, in this body, within me there's this longing for righteousness. Does it mean I'm perfect? Absolutely not. But there's a growing sense of frustration with my sinfulness because now as a Christian, I have the Spirit of God within me and I have my flesh and they're roommates that hate each other and they're at war. And in my mind, I want the Spirit to win. And Paul, this, the, the man who writes in Philippians that according to the law, he's blameless. By the time he gets to Romans as a Christian, he writes of this struggle. And in Romans 7, 14 through 25, I want to read this. It's long. I've referenced it a, a number of times. But I think that this is a picture of what does Matthew 5, 6 look like Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And Paul writes, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing that I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer... Am I the one doing it? But sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh of law and sin. And I think this is the beautiful picture of this longing for righteousness. The law was never, ever intended to be a means in which we save ourselves, the, the means in which we go through the checklist so that we have done enough good that we get into heaven. The whole purpose of the law, the whole purpose of what Jesus is expanding upon is that we recognize that we're cut off at the knees. We can't do anything to get to heaven. We're totally dependent and desperate for the mercy of God and his grace. And the law, as Paul writes in Galatians, it's like a teacher, a a tutor, a mentor that leads us to Christ. I think I want to move on to Matthew 5:31. He continues, it was said, same vein, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. He says, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So this, it was said. This is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 24, the, the first four verses. Um, let me get my little certificate here. Um, my pen. It's a fairly long passage, but in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, you'll come across uh, this line. And it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes a letter certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. Now on the um, contextual study of this verse, what Jesus is addressing, John MacArthur gives some great insight to the culture. He writes concerning this, Uh, By that period of Jewish history, divorce had become so easy and casual that a man could dismiss his wife for such trivial things as burning his meal or embarrassing him in front of his friends. Often the husband did not bother to give a reason since none was required. The rabbinic justification for such easy divorce was based on an erroneous interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24 verses 1 through 4 the Bible's first mention of a certificate of dismissal. So during the last service, I don't need to rewrite it. During the last service, I wrote Anna's little certificate. I need to deliver it to you. Honey, later. <laughs> That's all you needed for divorce. No reason, nothing. And so what was going on in this culture? It was just a joke. We're still married. <laughs> I may be in trouble big time today, but I... <laughs> But it made a great illustration. But that's what's going on. That is widespread. That the, the rabbis, the religious leaders from Deuteronomy chapter 4, it just says if you find some indecency, just write a little, you've been dismissed. <laughs> Give it to your wife and she can move on. It was widespread. And so Jesus comes to this and he says, It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Um, I still have more time to develop what Jesus is teaching on divorce. Um, Here, he's protecting the women in that culture from divorce, which was so commonplace and so easy. And he's going to expand upon divorce more explicitly in Matthew chapter 19. And so we're going to, in a few months, whenever we get to Matthew 19, we'll deal with divorce uh, more directly in that case. But I've read ahead and I want to say a few things from that section uh, that I've noticed. Um, in Christian culture, we have it in our minds that basically 
Divorce is bad, but if there's adultery, you have a green light. It's a fair game. You have a clean slate to walk away. Um, In this passage, I want to point out something that's interesting. Because for Jesus to say that, that would be a violation of the law. What he says here, multiple times in verse 27, 28, 32, I think I count just quickly right now, he uses the word adultery four times. Adultery in the sense that there is infidelity within the context of marriage dealing with sexual intercourse with somebody other than your spouse or with somebody who is married. Now, when we come here to verse 32, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, he does not use the word adultery. Because according to Leviticus 20, verse 10, for any sort of adultery, both parties involved, it was capital punishment. That was the law standard. If there was adultery, they were to be executed. This word unchastity is porneia. So it's a, uh, it's a broader sense. There's a lot of discussion here. And in, in Matthew chapter 19, when Jesus is asked directly about divorce, the Pharisees are trying to trap him. They're saying, well, why did Moses allow for divorce? And he says, the reason that Moses allowed for divorce is because of the hardness of man's heart. And so we see that the, while there is an escape clause for infidelity of, of some scope that extends beyond adultery, we see that the heart of God is reconciliation. Jesus is going to explain, and we'll get there, that in the case of whatever it is, that the vows that are made... God's intention is for you to work through them, to bring reconciliation, to bring healing, uh, that till death do us part, that those are fulfilled. There is another out of marriage that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. Paul writes concerning those who are married, they've come to Christ, you're a believer and your spouse is not. To the people who are believers, married to an unbeliever, you're to do everything that you can do to nurture, to cultivate, to honor that marriage to the best of your ability, to preserve it, to be married to that person, to death do you part. But if your non-believing spouse says, I'm out of here, I'm divorcing you, I don't want to be married to you anymore because of your faith for whatever reason, there in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, the Bible says, if your non-believing spouse departs, you're, not, you're, you're free from the contract. I think that the whole point of this passage, back to Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is pointing the, making the picture, pointing, highlighting, emphasizing that when God designed marriage, when two people get married, there's a permanence. In Matthew chapter 19, he says that two become one. When two become one, there's no removing of the two parts. Uh, During wedding ceremonies, during my wedding ceremony, my father-in-law described two pieces of wood that are glued together with super-duper strong glue. That the two pieces of wood become one. And if you were to try to remove the two pieces, it's going to damage the wood on both sides. And this is the point that Jesus is making in Matthew 19. That there's this permanence. It's hilarious. By the end of his teaching in chapter 19, so by the time you get to verse 12 of chapter 19 of Matthew, after the disciples have heard Jesus' response on marriage, they're kind of scratching their heads. And they say, well, Jesus... It almost seems like to not get married would be better than to be married. I can't remember how Jesus answered that one. But I do know that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 28, but if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have troubles in this life, and I am trying to spare you. The Bible may... The Bible doesn't paint this picture of marriage that it's like 
a sunset on the beach, drinking a glass of wine just 24-7, just enjoy, like, like a romance novel. The Bible makes it clear that you make these vows and it's two sinners coming together and it's going to be very, very, very difficult. But it's permanent. And the Bible makes it clear that God wants you to work through the difficulties. Um, Wedding vows are, are very serious before God. Um, this passage has caused some struggle in how to handle it. Um, every every Saturday night, I, I I basically toss and turn over Sunday morning. You think after this many years, I would not get nervous. I often the question I am struggling with is so what. And this is one of those passages that I'm str- like for weeks. So what? I'm struggling. There's there's one thing to have theology, to have doctrine. You can have books and books and books of books of doctrine. But there's something called applied theology. With like, how does it work out in life? And and all of our beliefs, all of our systems, when we start dealing with people, it gets a little sloppier because sin is kind of destructive and kind of hard. And how does it? Work out, and this is the area that I I, I really love to operate in. This the sloppy, you know. That's why I'm a pastor. Like, how does the scripture apply to us? How does this fit for us? I have two quotes that I want to read. I'm going to interrupt them, but uh, from the Life Application Bible Commentary, they said the, the first part is dealing with the commentary on the text. I thought it summarized it very well and very gracefully yet with truth of what the text says. And it begins on the commentary of these last two verses. Jesus would not stand for men tossing aside their wives. Marriage is so sanctified in God's eyes that remarriage after divorce amounts to adultery. Notice that while the divorced woman would become an adulteress, the man who divorced his wife would be at fault. He causes her to become an adulteress. Jesus would explain his strong words in Matthew 19, verses 3 through 12, on the grounds that God originally intended marriage to be for life. God created marriage to be a sacred and permanent union between and union and partnership between man and woman. When the husband and wife both enter this union with that understanding and commitment, they can provide security for each other, a stable home for their children, and strength to weather life storms. And stresses. It's a very direct sort of. That's that's what this verse is saying. Last night it's like midnight, two a.m. I'm tossing and turning. So what? Like being sensitive to, to 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 like the reality of divorce and the scars that were like the so. How does this? How does Jesus? Like what? There's got to be more. Like they're like. How do I handle this? And at like two in the morning or like, I don't know, late at night, I was wanting to be in bed by the time it happened. All of a sudden, I, I thought of something. I get on my phone and I email myself so I wouldn't forget this morning when I wake up to kind of put my notes together. And the thought that came to my mind was, Gunner, how did Jesus handle the woman at the well? And I like want to start crying. Like I, I I'm like, I, I can write this down. And I'm like, what about John chapter eight? And so this morning I woke up really early and I'm like going through these passages and, and I'm not going to turn there, but in John chapter four to remind you, the disciples have been traveling. They come to a spot. It's the middle of the day. Jesus stays at the well. He sends the disciples away for sandwiches or something. I don't know, but they went to, they needed lunch. So they go away. So Jesus is there and there's a woman who approaches to get water in the middle of the day, which was very uncommon in the middle of the day. Like the, the, the girls who got their water, the righteous girls, the good Jewish girls, they got their water in the morning. They'd all go social hour, get their water. And the only reason for this lady getting her water in the afternoon is she was an outcast and that she was shunned by the culture around her. We see that she was a Samaritan, so half Jewish, she'd... she'd uh, 
uh, I don't want to say a mixed breed, but they were viewed almost as a, as a mixed race. So there was further shunning by the culture. And so she shows up for some water and Jesus begins to talk to her. And he says, oh, kind of brings up, oh, what about your husband? And she says, oh, I don't have actually a husband. And Jesus says, oh, you answer that correctly because you've been divorced five times. And the guy you're currently living with, you're not married to. And in this whole exchange between the two of them, she sees who this man is. And the way that Jesus dealt with her was so beautiful. And if you read through the story, at the end of their exchange, you see that many Samaritans came to faith in Christ as a result of this woman's testimony. In chapter 3 of John, it's a story of Nicodemus. Uh, between chapter 3 and chapter 4, you don't, there, there is no greater polarization. That you have the, the, the utmost righteous religious man approaching Jesus at night, and now you have this woman who is the lowest uh, of society. Then you read a few more chapters in John, and we're introduced to a new woman. And in my mind, what I see is I see this woman, totally naked, being drugged there forcibly, tears, embarrassment, shame, humiliation, whatever other descriptive words you guys could think of along those lines lines a group of men just manhandling her they bring her before jesus and they say this woman was caught in the very act of adultery what should we do they all have their stones because leviticus chapter 20 verse 10 says that you're supposed to stone the person to death And there's great debate. Nobody knows. I would say there's great speculation. It's probably not a debate. We know the story. Jesus gets down to the sand and he starts writing something in the sand. Some have said that he starts listing guys' names connected to sins that they'd committed in the past. Some have suggested that he wrote, where's the man, which is an interesting one. When you're caught in the very act of adultery, in the very act of it, I would think that it would be pretty easy to get both people. And how did they get her but not him? <laughs> that might have, well, that was Johnny. That's one of our boys. We're not going to sell him out. <laughs> we don't know what Jesus wrote, but we know that starting from the oldest man to the youngest, they slowly begin to set down their stones and they walk away. And then there's Jesus and this woman caught in the act of adultery. And he says, where is everybody? Just as they've all left. And then we're left with this woman and the one person in human history who actually had the righteousness and the authority to stone her to death. Jesus could have stoned her and been within the law legally. And he says, depart and sin no more. Now, in the early church history, some of your Bibles might have little notes like, in John chapter 8, that they've, re- they've removed this passage. And, and they thought the early church father, they, some of them removed this passage from the scriptures because it was leading people into like thinking that there was no warning, about, like that it was encouraging adultery and infidelity. But it's ridiculous because it removes the whole premise that as Jesus sends her away, where was Jesus going? Jesus was going to the cross. I don't remember if I started today with a quote, but Spurgeon says that we're not graded on the curve, but we're graded by the cross. And so if you're at all going through this passage and thinking, I've never committed adultery. I've never had a divorce like so-and-so. I'm good. If that's, where, if that's where you're going, you're missing everything that Jesus is teaching here. Because what Jesus is doing is he is chopping us all off at the lakes, making us all realize that we need his grace. 
I'll never forget when Anna and I, when it was time for me to get out of the Navy, I, I knew that I felt called to teach the Bible. I didn't know what, in what context. I was now married to a girl who grew up in the mission field. And my big excuse for not pursuing overseas missions is because I speak English. And I barely can do that well enough. And, and so I said, well, I have to stay in the United States because I, I, I feel called to teach the Bible. But then through some way, I, somehow God has a way of like exposing misperceptions. Apparently they speak English in other parts of the world. And uh, so when I found that out, my whole like, Lord, here I am. I'll go wherever, like whatever you want, I'll do. Well, suddenly the boundaries that I had placed on myself expanded. And um, so we entered, ended up interviewing with an organization called SIM, Sudan Interior Mission, which is now called Serving in Mission. We had to do a whole battery of tests um, from psychological to um, applied theology questions. And I'll never forget one essay question that I had to answer. And the question is, you are now serving at a church deep in Africa with tribal people. There is a man who's come to Christ. He's grown in his walk. He has been discipled. He's exercised great um, maturity. He's an asset to the church. He's leading. He understands the scriptures. Basically, every requirement laid out in Timothy concerning an elder and a deacon, this man has met. However, the man has four wives. How do you handle this? <laughs> they didn't teach me this in seminary. How do I handle this? And so I wrestled through the question. I wrote my, my page answer, mailed everything in. Three weeks later, we find ourselves in North Carolina. We're, we're through the four days. We're doing the whole thing. We had the last day, and I'm like, when are they going to review my answers? So finally, I stopped them. I'm like, I need to review. Like, did I pass, fail? Like, what is the answer to this question? I'm like, well, what question are you struggling with? You know, the guy with all the wives. It's... And I'm like, oh, that's a tough one. They're like, it really is a, that really is a, um, a, a difficult problem that we face. And the way that we would handle it is the person would be, welcome in the church fellowship, but we couldn't let him serve in this capacity for the biblical text. And we would never encourage the person to divorce his wives because he's made vows to these women. He's like, you know, ministry's sloppy. Sin really complicates things. And I'll never forget his response. His response impacted me. Uh, Chuck Smith also impacted me. One of the things that Chuck said throughout his philosophy of ministry is when we come upon these difficult passages and we're torn, we see what it says and there's, you can land one way or you can land one, the other way. He, he was known for saying that the way he would always land is he would err on the side of grace. And so as we look at this passage, I, I want to say that first and foremost, what Jesus is pointing us to is that God, he is the author, the perfecter, the creator of all things. All of this is pointing us to Jesus, that we need him, we need his grace for salvation. Unless you've come to him by faith and received salvation, none of this other stuff matters. I think that at the heart of this passage is that he's challenging us to purity and to righteousness and those of us who have trusted in Christ and are following after him, we need to long for his righteousness. That doesn't mean that we attain it, but it means we pursue it. When we stumble, we confess our sins. His word tells us that he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. As it relates to marriage, all of us, married, unmarried, th this relationship is super important. If you're married, guard your marriage, cultivate it, nurture it, develop it. The greatest thing that you can do for your kids is to love your spouse. You know, we as Christians, we, we, have, we have our Christianese and we always say, oh, 
God first, then our marriage, then our kids. Like, that's like the Christianese answer. But it's like, do we really believe it? Do we really live it? We sang a song before I got up here that there was a pastor I can't in history that he refused to allow his church to sing that for fear of the repercussions. And so ever since I learned about the guy, I have a hard time singing this song. I still do. But I get zapped. I surrender all. We all sing it. We all just sing, I surrender all, all to you. I, do we really? I sing, I, Lord, I surrender all. Lord, okay, I really, financial, okay, I, I trust you. I do, I do. Lord, I, uh, I really surrender all. Help me to keep my hands. We need to honor him. I had a point somewhere in here. <laughs> oh, yeah. If you're married, guard and invest in your marriage. God first, your marriage, your kid. Like, we need to glorify him and honor him. And the way he wants us to honor him, it cuts against our culture. And I want to point out, it's not about the past. This whole passage, he's, the the, the men who were married were being addressed. It's not about where you've been. If you have a divorce in your past and you're remarried, you need God's grace just like I need God's grace. If you have adultery in your past, you need God's grace just like I need God's grace. Then I was supposed to read this last part, which I didn't do. I'll read this. I don't think I read it. I'll read this and then I'll close in prayer. May a divorced person remarry. Jesus would seem to prohibit divorced persons from remarrying, forcing them to live either in celibacy or sin. Jesus' main point was that people should not use the divorce laws to dispose of a partner in order to get another one. The nagging question for Christians remains, may a divorced person who truly repents of a sinful past and commits his or her life to God remarry. We long for a simple, direct reply to that question, but we have only biblical context as an answer. We have Jesus' high view of marriage and low view of divorce recorded in the Gospels. Jesus proclaimed new life, full of forgiveness and restoration to all who would come to God in repentance and faith. Spiritual discernment is essential here, but the gospel, God's promise of wholeness and full healing, includes the sacred bond of marriage. Churches should be ready to give a repentant, formally married person the opportunity to marry another believer. And Father, we do thank you, Lord, for your word. Father, I thank you for the teaching of Christ. His teaching was like no other man, no other woman. He taught with authority. He taught with clarity. He taught with the understanding as the one who authored the scriptures. Father, we come before you and we are challenged by the very high standard of righteousness that Christ sets. Father, we thank you that this standard is so high that it forces us to our knees. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God and continue to fall short of the glory of God. We thank you that the law's intent was never to give us a checklist of things to do to earn our own righteousness, to get to heaven, that hopefully the day we die, that our good would outweigh the bad. We thank you, Lord, that as Spurgeon said, that we're not measured on a curve, but on the cross. And so, Lord, we rejoice that Jesus paid it all. We thank you, Lord, for the great grace that you've poured out upon us. We pray that you would help us to understand it. We pray that you would help us to live in grace. We pray that you would help us to walk in grace. We pray that you would help us to demonstrate grace to others. 
Father, we thank you that you're a God of mercy. We praise you that it's by your mercy that we come before you. We thank you, Lord. Father, we pray that you would help us to be a merciful people. Lord, we pray that you would create a longing in our heart for your righteousness. Father, we pray for the hurt and the pain that divorce has caused so many of us, whether it was our parents, our grandparents, our children, our own lives. Father, we pray that you would create healing. Heal the pain that we feel from these events. Father, we pray for those who are married, that you would guard their marriages, that you would fuel uh, their love for one another, that it would be as the day they were married. Father, we pray for the single people in our midst, Lord, that as they, uh, if they're called to marriage, Lord, that you would help them um, to honor you in their singleness, that you would prepare them for marriage. Father, we pray that we would glorify you in all things. We love you, Lord. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.